This particular uh, gospel passage that we just heard, um, about four or five times a week, it comes to mind every time I drive back to Toowoomba. Um, as you know, Trace and I live in, in Toowoomba, and as we drive home, I pass uh, Marburg, I pass Gatton, I pass Grantham, uh, I pass Helladon, and I can't see any of them from the road. But as soon as I cross the Minden Range, about 20 minutes west of here, I see this big city on a hill because it's got all its light shining at night and it's full of all these little individual lights but when you're, uh, say, 40 or 50 kilometres away, you see this one glow and it can't be hidden. You cannot hide the city of Toowoomba. Now, whether that's good or bad uh, remains to be seen but uh, it's remarkable and this, this Bible passage always comes alive to me because it's so practical and so real. This is how uh, we are to live as part of the body of Christ, as Christians who have uh, believed that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, so that we could have a relationship with our Father. And this is how we are to live. And this lovely pastoral letter that Paul has written to his young disciple, whom he calls his son in the faith, they were that close, uh, tells us how we can actually go about doing such a difficult job as representing Christ on earth. I mean, if that doesn't freak us out, we're not really thinking very hard. But the good news is that the work of the growth of the church is purely done by Christ. Uh, but what we do uh, is avail ourselves of all the power that is out there in the spiritual realms by being obedient and real, authentic. This is a very real passages we're getting from the Bible. Often we can read the Gospels and they're so wonderful and cosy and warm and as soon as we go out into the real world, they seem to blow away with the wind. We think, why can't I be like that all the time? And these are the ways that we can. So um, the way we're going to do that is just put the last couple of weeks in context because Timothy is one of the very few that Paul called uh, a fellow apostle. And two of the other ones were, were Barnabas and Apollos, whom we've had over the last couple of weeks. So... Where we are in terms of context is I'm going to jump right in about here where Charlie was walking a couple of weeks ago when Barnabas and Paul had a strong disagreement while they were in Caesarea about where they should go and whom should accompany them on Paul's second missionary journey. And in the end, they decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas and John Mark, or Mark, the gospel writer, went to Cyprus and Paul and Silas, another one of his companions, went to the north and to the west and went through Cilicia, which is the top of eastern Turkey, we would call, and kept going through southern Galatia until they came to a place called Lystra. And this is where we meet Timothy. Now, when we read Acts and all of the letters of Paul, we can think that he, Paul himself, is this great light of the New Testament. And everyone else can't be seen because of Paul's great light. However, if you read in detail Paul's letters to the churches and also the book of Acts, um, Paul is surrounded by light, by other little um, points of light that make Paul's light seem brighter, and he calls them his co-workers. Um, now, he had between 80 and 90 of them. There wasn't just a couple but he had some that were very, very close. And Timothy and Titus and Silas and Barnabas 
These were all really close to him, and we know a lot about them because they were heavily involved in the churches that he wrote the letters to. But we're going to come in here where Silas and Paul are now in Lystra, which is um, just to the west of Galatia. And um, what's happened is he's come into this place. He goes, the first thing that Paul ever does, he goes to the synagogue to speak to the believers, to the church, to the Jewish church at the time. Now, what happened here, because of the signs and miracles that God accompanied his word with, people started to worship Paul and Silas as gods. And he said, no, no, stop, stop, stop. So they stopped doing that. Then they took him outside and stoned him. So all in one town of Lystra, he was surrounding the Holy Word with um, signs and miracles and healings, and then in the next breath he was being stoned because the Jews incited hatred against him. All in this one town, and when you read these very few verses, it seems to happen almost the next day. It all happens very quickly. And this is where we meet Timothy. Timothy was a native of Lystra, and we reckon that at this age, as Charlie said earlier, he would have only been in his late teens. He would have been very young. But he was already, the scriptures tell us, he was already well known as far afield as Iconium, which was probably uh, about as far as Minden, up the road, about 30 k's away. So even as a young man in a really young church, he was already a power of good. He was already shining his light, letting his light shine, in that area in which he had been placed. Now, what happens, we don't know how he got Paul got him to do what Paul wanted him to do, which was to come with him. But all we know in, in the writing is that he said, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And that's what happened. So there's no recorded response from Timothy. And the only verse, and it's only one verse later, that he's suddenly immersed in this frontline Paul-style church building. Paul goes to a place where he's planted a church and he goes to strengthen it and to bring messages of goodwill and instruction from the church in Jerusalem, which he's on his way back from at the start of this second mission. So then you had not just Paul and Silas, but you had Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they kept heading sort of west and slightly south because Paul had a vision he had to go to Macedonia, which is on the east coast of Greece, we would call it. So they go to the port of Troas, then they cross over to Neapolis and Philippi and Thessalonica, and the church was growing wildly at this time. The scriptures say every day it was being increased in numbers and it was being strengthened in their faith. And these were really powerful and exciting times in the church, um, and this was around about um, 50, 50 years after the birth of Christ, that roundabout. The trouble is, Paul, when the message of God is preached and there are people opposed to it, all sorts of things happen. Loads of people come to faith and loads of Christians are persecuted. This is happening now and it was no different 1950 years ago. And this is what happened um, they went to Neapolis and they went to Philippi. They got bashed up in Philippi. They went to Thessalonica, got bashed up in Thessalonica. Went to Berea, got bashed, were followed to Berea from Thessalonica and Paul said, I'm going to go to Athens. 
So he went to Athens and said, but you guys, I want you, Timothy and Silas, to go back to Thessalonica. Now, this is quite a remarkable thing. Paul is going to the safety, it would seem, of Athens, the home of all modern philosophy and discourse about absolutely everything under the sun. This was the home of what we would call uh, all the New Age gods and all the things that people worship that isn't Christ happens in Athens. This was the headquarters of philosophy. But Silas and Timothy are sent back to Thessalonica to strengthen this little baby church because Paul didn't want them to think that they'd been deserted because they were run out of town by the Jews in Thessalonica. Paul didn't want the church there to feel that he'd been deserted. So he sends this young young man, probably about 20, and Silas, go back to Thessalonica and strengthen the church. He doesn't tell us how to do these things. He doesn't say, this is how, Timothy, I want you to strengthen the church by doing this. Have a parish council meeting on a Monday night. Then on a Tuesday, visit those who are sick. Wednesday, we'll all get together for prayer. He doesn't say that. What's implied is that Timothy will be just like Paul knows him to be, a beautiful son of God in Jesus Christ. Be yourself, Timothy. You and Silas, be yourselves. Go back to Thessalonica and strengthen this little church so they know that we are not going to desert them just when things get tough. So Silas and Timothy were still there when Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, which is further south on the tip of the Greek sort of peninsula, I guess you'd call it. But what a reunion that would have been. Timothy and Silas come from Thessalonica, go down to Corinth, where Paul has already been working as a tent maker, which is his trade, to support himself. But Timothy and Silas, in the absence of Paul, just by shining their light, had had such a successful time of it in Thessalonica that they came back bringing a huge offering to the church in Corinth and to Paul so that Paul no longer had to ply his trade of, as a tent maker, but he could support himself on all the offerings given by the people from Thessalonica and in, in the scriptures so he could devote himself entirely to preaching the word and refuting the worship of foreign gods. So what an amazingly successful job these young disciples of Paul had done in Thessalonica. And when you read the letters to the Thessalonians, Timothy is mentioned there as Paul having sent him back to strengthen the church. Now, not only that, so from this really young age, Paul had been, uh, Timothy, sorry, had been thrust into this amazing church-building activity of Paul. Uh, not only that, he was with Paul in prison. He was imprisoned with Paul when he wrote um, his letters to the Philippians and the Colossians and to Philemon. He was in jail with Paul at that time. So for well over a decade and long after the book of Acts finishes, Timothy and Paul have this really fruitful and close connection. Now, when he wrote his first letter to Timothy, this was considerably after all of this exciting time in Acts, probably well over a decade. And in this first letter that we had up there before, parts of it, he is still calling Timothy a young man. Now, this would have been, say, 12 or 13 years after these, 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 uh, these deeds in, in, that are recorded in the book of Acts. So Timothy was still a young man. 
And when Paul wrote his first letter to him, he was a very senior member of the church in Ephesus, which had probably been around for about 10 or 15 years um, as an effective church. So he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major trading port. It was also a centre of the Roman cult of worshipping Roman gods. And it was a centre for disciples of these foreign and uh, demonic gods. And the temple at Ephesus is one of the ancient, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world as they worshipped a god called Artemis. But it was known as a centre for cultic teaching. And in the midst of all this poison, God has caused this beautiful church to grow. And, and Paul in his letters to, in his letter to the Ephesians is one of the great theological treaties that in the book of Romans seem to be quoted by theological theologians more than almost any other book. And it's in the midst of these huge Roman centers that God chose his church to flourish, which is really a remarkable thing. And he did a lot of it through this young man called Timothy. Now, in this letter, earlier on, he encourages Paul, uh, sorry, encourages Timothy to remain true to the gospel that he has learnt from his mother and his grandmother. Timothy was born a believer. His father was Greek, but his mum was Jewish. But through his mother and his grandmother, he'd come to faith in Christ. So today's passage that we read today, um, that the Judy read today, begins with Paul. He must teach against the false teaching, reject all of these ordinances being given about what sort of foods you can eat, whether or not you need to be circumcised. These are rules made by men, not at all by God. But overall, Timothy, strive for godliness. So what is godliness? Godliness is that part of us that is evident in everything we do, in the way people view us. It's not a a form of self-imposed piety. It's not trying to be good. It's not trying to learn the rules that means God would smile at me. It's none of those things. It arises out of us knowing that we are inhabited by Christ and we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And that gives us confidence to go anywhere in the world if we would just allow that confidence and faith that Christ gives us. And this is what Paul is really striving Timothy to know. And he says, don't let them look down on you because of your age. In the whole New Testament world, age meant respect and wisdom and knowledge. And youth meant you be quiet and you listen and you learn and you look at the way that your superiors, your elders act in this world. But God, as so often he does in the whole of scriptures, turns what we think of worldly wisdom, he just turns it on his head. So he's saying, don't let them look down on you, but set an example for the believers. Paul's telling Timothy, don't be insecure because you're young. Don't be afraid because you're young. Don't be silent. And don't passively let people put you down because of your age. Actively, actively show leadership by being who you actually are, your true self. And you do this not by confrontation, not at all. We all know that that doesn't work. 
but by exemplification, being an example for all believers of all ages. Look, in my case, I look back on all of those uh, who have been spiritual mentors and, who, mentors and who are spiritual mentors and role models to me, and the greatest and most powerful way they've always helped me is just by the way they've lived their lives. And particularly when you see them in situations where they're under pressure. And there's that lovely phrase, grace, grace under pressure. And truly, that is a Christian virtue that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And the greatest tool for living the Christian life is the power of the example we all show. This is, this is what is called integrity. This is what means having integrity. So when we speak, we are seen as being authentic. We're, we're real, you know. By our conduct, we love our family in church. We love the family that we have outside of the church. And we also love those who trouble us, our enemies. This is the crucible where all our character is formed and we persevere. Diamonds are performed by just this incredible pressure on carbon. We're carbon. And out come these diamonds. We don't know how God does this. But in the most unlikely people and always in the most unlikely situations. God doesn't choose the heroic. He just chooses the real, the everyday people, everyday, pardon me, men and women. So the way it works is um, because the love of God has led Jesus to us, the love of Christ in us, leads us to love others. And the way we love others is what we call our ministry in life. That's what our ministry is. And all of it comes from the love of God in Christ, in us, and out of us. It's really logical, and this is a spiritual truth. So Timothy is urged not to neglect the gift that was given him when the elders laid their hands on him. This is actually a precursor to ordination. So Timothy is actually an ordained guy in the church because what happens when you're ordained is the elders of the church lay their hands on you. It's as simple as that. And big things are said. And these are the same hands that laid heads. It's called the apostolic ministry and we can trace that back to Jesus himself choosing his disciples. Now, this gift that Timothy had is the same gift that we get except tailored for Timothy. Every one of us has a gift. Now, this gift comes upon us by the power of the Holy Spirit when we first believe. We can't neglect this if we want to live abundant lives in Christ. This is how our lives become abundant. And the, Spirit's, the Spirit's gifting doesn't make us anything that we're not. It doesn't make us this weird new new thing. As C.S. Lewis says, it makes it more and more you. The Holy Spirit makes me more and more rickish. It makes Charlie more Charlie-ish. It just makes it godly. It makes Chi-Chi more Chi-Chi-ish, you know. Eternal life starts the moment we believe, not when we die and then we get a new life and live forever. Eternal life starts the moment we believe. So we're born again 
or born from above in our new life by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and the giver of life. We say that in our creed. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives our new life all of its authenticity and allows us to live a life of integrity. So Paul is telling, telling Timothy that this new life, being gifted in the Holy Spirit, is made evident to all, even in his leadership. His Holy Spirit, his leadership style, the authority, is authenticated by Christ himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit. No matter how old we are, and I might add, no matter how young we are or how old we are or how middle-aged we might be. And this is what the gospel is telling us this morning. By being our authentic, godly selves in Christ, we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I think Jesus chose these two metaphors for godliness, which is what Paul was urging on Timothy, because both of them heavily influence their environment. You know when salt's in something and you know when the light's on. Both of them have immediate impact on the environment in which they're found. Neither of them can be ignored. Both are difficult to hide and both are absolutely everywhere. If someone is genuine, useful, honest, straightforward, we call them the salt of the earth. And salt preserves the faithful living of the gospel of Jesus. This is the good deposit that has been handed down from Christ to his disciples through to Springfield in 2018. It has been preserved. And it's so easily tainted. It's so easily tainted. The only thing that can take salt away that Trace and I were talking the other day is we think sugar can. If you put enough sugar in something, it won't taste salty anymore. It'll just be really sickly sweet. So we need to really preserve the deposit that we have received in this apostolic faith that we are all part of. Um, by preserving this, we are being true to Christ. We are being true and authentic to ourselves. And the other big benefit of being a salty sort of Christian is it makes people thirsty. If, if people can see the life of Christ in us, and Jesus describes the water, the living water comes out of us, it wells out of us. This is how Jesus describes it in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 4. It comes out of us. And people drink of it. And it's so wonderful because they're thirsty. And this is, this is one of the jobs of being authentic in our Christian walk is that people see what we have and decide there's something in that that gives that person peace. I really want that. Because if we have peace, we have absolutely everything. We are not worried about anything. We are at peace. We're at peace financially. We're at peace in our family. We're at peace where we live. And we're 100% at peace with God. And this is what Paul is striving Timothy to become. People will witness this. In you, you won't have to worry about being young or being too old or them not listening to you or them not respecting you because they'll be able to see for themselves the effect of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the whole thing is when we do that, it allows God to actually do the growing. As, as Paul said in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, that, look, I planted the scene and Apollos watered it but God causes it to grow. We can't cause anything to happen. We can just be ourselves. 
And that's such a wonderful relief. We don't have to strive to work hard for the kingdom of God to come about. It's by his grace alone that he allows us to share in this wonderful work. He actually doesn't need my pathetic little gifts that I could bring. He doesn't. But he graciously allows me to be a co-worker with him, just as Paul allowed Timothy and Silas to be co-workers with him. Light dispels all darkness. Jesus said of God, in God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. The light reveals all things, it awakens us, and it also serves to alarm us. Light shows the world exactly the way it is. Because above all else, God deals in reality. And the Gospel reading this morning was from the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about living in reality. Not in a little churchy world, but in the reality of life. Like going to school and uni every day, that's real. Having to wake up and go to work every day is real. Trying to bring up children is really real. And God is real. God in our lives is so real that all of these things are what we do. It's not that we strive to do them, but we just go through life full of peace that just oozes out of us. It just oozes out of us. And it's a wonderful gift to the world. The church is actually God's great gift to the world. And this is how we can start to be it. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit creates new life in us because we are one in and with Jesus Christ. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says, when I'm raised up, so when I'm raised up on the cross and, I'm, and I die and I descend and I do battle with hell and I'm ascended up into heaven, all of this, all people will be drawn to me because of that. All people will be drawn to me. And this is why our authentic and true selves are attractive. They attract because Christ first loved us. And it's only through that that we can be ourselves and truly let our light shine. Please, let's pray. Our Father, we praise and thank you for our community here at St Andrews at Springfield. Holy Spirit, come, reveal to us our true selves and that by your confidence we can be ourselves in all situations. Help us, Father, to know that no one can look down on us when you are in our life in Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.